Heavenly Father, it's good to come into thy house on this, the Lord's day, when we remember thy triumph over the grave and over death, and in so doing, bring for us both victory, life, and a new life in Christ. We thank thee for this opportunity we have, and we thank thee for thy living word that can guide us in these confusing times. And Heavenly Father, help us not to lean to our own wisdom, but to wait on thee for the wisdom that comes from above. Be with those that could not gather with us this morning hour, those who are either sick or uh, aged, infirm, those who are going through difficulties, Heavenly Father. Be also with those who are spreading the gospel, perhaps in the face of great persecution this morning hour. Be with them, Heavenly Father, and let thy word go forth accomplishing its purpose until thou wilt return. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. With the Lord's help and as the basis for our meditation this morning, I'd like to read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, the second chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declare unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, The things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself 
is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I've read the entire chapter. The Lord is worthy that we bow before him in prayer. <clears throat> o Father in heaven, we come before your throne of grace, humbled before thee, the creator of all things, the creator of things we see and we do not see. Your glory is all around about us and how much more in your church. As your word says to him, to Christ, be glory in the church. And Lord, we're thankful that we are more than two or three. We know <clears throat> that the early church beginnings they gathered in pockets and clusters, in households. And how blessed we are to have as many as we do and that we should be thankful for it. Father in heaven, we are thankful that many have gathered this morning to worship thee in spirit and in truth. We know that there are others, as we have already heard, that have gone on a on a camping trip, and we pray that even there, your glory would be so much more emphasized in the midst of your creation. The glorious lakes and hills and trees and wildlife, that they may feel your, feel your nearness there, and that you'd give wisdom and understanding to the leaders of the team to speak your truth and to form those bonds that are so necessary in the household of faith. Father, we thank thee <coughs> for your members here as we even sing, grateful are thy members ever. And as we have sung this morning of the unity of the brethren, <clears throat> we pray that your presence will be felt with us this morning, that you'd give voice to Brother Phil as he would minister your word and a clear understanding and articulation and that you'd give us open hearts to receive it. Father, we pray for those that could not be here because of illness or because of age and other life's pressures, we pray that you would continue to be with them also and reach them in a very special way. Father, we especially pray for um, those that are in our midst that have illnesses. And we pray especially for Sister Olga Ordog as we have already being informed of her situation, and we pray that you would continue to be with her, be her comfort, be her strength, and knowing that she is in your hands and there are no better hands than to have them placed. Father, we pray for healing, for comfort and for strength 
and that your name would still be glorified in her life. Father, we pray for others that are not here that have had chronic, chronic illnesses, those that are still suffering, Sister Olga Vukov, um, <clears throat> Sister Kara Freeman, uh, Liv Bilek, Sister Liv Bilek, and Brother Peter Rankovich. Oh Lord, there are so many that are suffering and, and we know that <clears throat> there is a reason and a purpose for all of this and it may come to us one day also, but to know that our full dependency and a sufficiency is of Christ and that this life is temporal and we are reminded by this very apostle who wrote the first epistle and the second epistle saying that we ought to seek the things that are <clears throat> not so much temporal but eternal. Our Father, we pray that in your word we may seek it, in your Holy Spirit, as we have read this morning already, that we may seek him because he's the comforter, he's the strengthener, he is the paraclete, the intercessor. When our prayers are, are not enough, when our prayers are so much lacking, that he would intercede with groanings that cannot be uttered and we cannot even hear, but you hear, Lord, in heaven. Father, we pray for those that are without Christ, those that do not have him as their personal saviour and redeemer. We pray that your Holy Spirit, as we have read this morning, that he may be the one that reveals to them the, the mysteries of this, the, the kingdom, but the simplicity of the gospel, and that he's the only one that can open their hearts if they allow him, yes, Lord, if they allow him through humbling themselves through becoming poor in spirit for mourning over their sins and for seeking the kingdom of God first and its righteousness. Father, be with us now. Watch over us. Provide our each and every need for all these things we ask and we commend into your care and keeping as we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> I think one of the reasons that scripture encourages us so often to gather together is because our tendency when we are alone is to carnality. When we're alone, we find it easy to rationalize things to ourselves, to make excuses for ourselves. And therefore, the oft-repeated admonition not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together is very good, because one of the signs of spiritual ill health is to absent yourself from the body of Christ. That's not a sign of strength. It's the rare man or woman that can go off on their own for extended periods of time. In, in such close communion with God that he doesn't need the encouragement or the reminder of other believers. 
But of course, there's a danger also in groups. If wrong ideas get into a group, the whole can go bad as well. And Paul gives us some examples, and one of the things that caught my attention when I was reading through this chapter before this morning was the third verse. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But then if you keep reading the fourth verse, it says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. If he was in the Spirit with power, why was he in weakness and fear and trembling? What was he afraid of? What caused him to tremble? This might be conjecture, but I think it's borne out by Scripture. I think the thing that caused Paul to tremble, the thing that he was really worried about, the thing that kept him up at night, if you would, was that this group of believers in Corinth were going to neglect the core of the gospel and instead go after the wisdom of men. Paul was no intellectual lightweight. In my opinion, he's one of the most brilliant men that ever lived. God was able to use his incredible gifts in a powerful way, in a spirit-infused way, to write letters for us that are impacting our life even today. His command of ancient culture, history, language, metaphor, was extraordinary. The things that he wrote the wisest man, the wisest woman, still marvel at how the Lord was able to use him and his gifts. So I don't think it was because of any intellectual failing. He certainly could have debated the Corinthian believers on the intellectual plane. <coughs> he could have been eloquent. His letters are incredibly eloquent. The fact that his preaching produced so much fruit, I think, is a sign also of his eloquence, even though he talks about his bodily presence being weak. I think that had more to do with his, maybe his physical appearance than the content of what he was saying. So, he was so concerned with the Corinthian believers that we're, we're, an, we're an intellectual church, we're a church of well-educated believers, his, his concern was that their faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, this introduces a, uh, seemingly a paradox. Is Paul saying that there, there is no, uh, nothing that can be recognized as earthly wisdom in the word of God? Of course not. Faith in, in, in God is not an unreasonable faith. But it is not the way to get to God. Renewing with God does not depend on our intellect.
there's, there's a higher wisdom, a different wisdom than the wisdom of the intellect. I want you to notice some of the things that he tells us about this, this godly wisdom. Howbeit we speak, this is the sixth verse, <clears throat> howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. He's talking about godly, godly wisdom and them that are mature, that can understand those things. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. The wisdom of this world that comes to naught. One of the phrases of this pandemic that we've heard again and again, probably ad nauseum, is follow the science. Listen to the science. It's the science. Yet how many times have opinions flip-flopped on so many of these subjects? So what sort of wisdom is this? The Bible tells us that this wisdom comes to nothing. It fades away. It's replaced by the next revelation, the next understanding. We no longer believe uh, the things about science that was believed a thousand years ago. We no longer think that the earth is at the center of the solar system. We understand that the sun is. We no longer uh, think that the, the world is flat. We understand that it is a globe. Science becomes outdated and is replaced by better science. It, 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 it's, it comes to nothing. But now contrast this with what God says about his own wisdom. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom <clears throat> which God ordained before the world unto our glory. This is wisdom of a totally different order. It's not a wisdom that changes. That's why I'm not afraid of technological uh, innovation displacing the Bible. It's based on a wisdom that is uh, higher above of a different plane altogether than the wisdom of this world. Thomas, I think it was Thomas Edison that famously said that if, if he had enough time, he would, he would invent a machine that would be able to uh, to, to find God, to, to register God, to measure God. I mean, that demonstrates uh, an arrogance, but a foolishness and a lack of understanding about God that's fundamental to what God really is, who, who God really is. So there's a problem. Those that throw their lot in with the world, world's wisdom and only with the world's wisdom will miss out on the things of God. In fact, they will draw in the, ent in the entirely wrong conclusion about the wisdom of God. We know this because in the 8th verse it says, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, had they known this godly wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Peter says, in his uh, great sermon in Acts, the beginning of Acts, I think it's the third chapter, he says, But I wot, brethren, that ye did this in ignorance as also did your leaders. For had they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were ignorant of this. 
worldly wisdom led them to the conclusion, even uh, I think it was Annas the high priest who said, don't you know that it's expedient that one man should die that the people perish not? He was actually speaking godly wisdom and didn't realize it. He was taking that godly wisdom and understanding that in a carnal way. That's the problem with man apart from God. So how do we know this godly wisdom? How do we understand things in the way that God wants us to understand them? But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. This verse is often quoted in reference to heaven. And though these things do apply to the things in the heavenlies that we have not seen or understood, that's not really what Paul is focusing on here. Because the next verse says, For what man knoweth, uh, sorry, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Look at the contrast. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man. Now that's the carnal man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. This is actually a quotation from, uh, from the prophet Isaiah, the 64th chapter. I'd like to read a few verses from there. Isaiah 64. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, and that thou wouldest come down that the, the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence, when it is terrible things which we look not for. Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Having the right idea of God is so important. Understanding that God is so much greater than we are and that there will come a time when he will come down in a way that we're not expecting and reveal his greatness and his glory. Godly wisdom, in a nutshell, is this. Those that are with God have everything and are protected by him. They don't need to fear. You do not need to be an intellectual to understand that. One little picture in scripture that, that shows us a little bit of this is, uh, I think it was... Uh, Elisha and, and, and Gehazi, his servant, that were in that village, and the village was surrounded by enemy troops. And his servant looked out and said, 
what are we going to do? I think he says, alas, Father, what are we going to do? We're, we're surrounded by our enemies. And what does Elisha say? He said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And he looked, and he saw the, the, the hills, the mountains around that city were, were uh, filled with the fiery chariots of God. That's the wisdom of God that understands that this world is not it, that this carnal reality is only, is only the tip of the iceberg when we talk about the entirety of the reality that our, our spiritual being inhabits. And that he that is with God need not fear. So understanding God is critical to our faith in him as well. Understanding God is something that is not an intellectual pursuit. Christ himself says, by doing what I teach, you will know if my words are true. You don't need a doctorate to examine the words of Christ. Do them. Do what he says, and you will understand. Your spiritual eyes will be opened. That requires humility. And that's something that we all have a problem with, whether we're intellectual or very simple. Humility, letting go um, of the good opinion of ourselves. Submitting ourselves to one who is greater than we are. Is that really all that hard when we consider how great God is? Not in hindsight. But as the carnal man looks at these things, it says they're foolishness to him. He says, unless you can explain it to me, I won't believe. The simple might say, unless I can see, I won't believe. Everyone has their excuse. But that humility is foundational to, to entering the school of God's wisdom. If you come with anything in your hands, he cannot teach you. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? What does that mean? I'll do my best to explain it simply. If you want to know about someone, you need to talk to them. It's that simple. You know, often um, literary critics and, and, and uh, um, scholars will look at the writing of someone who's dead and they'll, they'll conjecture what they really meant by what they wrote. And much ink is spilled debating one point or the other. How simple it would be if you could just talk to the guy who wrote it. Is this what you meant? It's the same way with God. Do you want to understand him? Then you need the Spirit of God to understand him. There's no other way. If you try to approach the Word of God as an intellectual pursuit only, you'll go wrong every time. This is why Paul was so concerned with these believers in Corinth. 
if they gave way to their carnal inclinations to make this an intellectual pursuit, a book club, a little uh, um, clutch of intelligentsia that would debate these high ideas, Paul's work would have been for nothing. They needed the Spirit of God, and they had to realize that the carnal mind was in direct opposition to the Spirit of God. Remember what he said, that they would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they had known. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. What you think about God might just be the most important thing about you. What you think about God might be the most important thing about you. I think that's true. I think that statement is true. How big is your idea of God? David, the psalmist, said in, in, in Psalm 34, magnify the Lord with me. That wasn't to make God bigger than what he really was. That was just to try to make my understanding of God start approximating the, the greatness that is his. And if you want to understand how great God really is, you need his spirit. Receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Okay, let's say I'm talking mysteries. I'm, I'm, I'm not making sense. So what does this word mean? This is very simple. Anyone can understand this. that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. What is freely given to us of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's the thing that's freely given to everyone. Do you want to understand God? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You don't need a doctorate to understand the life of Jesus Christ. You can see clearly in his life, his actions, his words, what God is like. By looking at Jesus, what can we understand about God? We can understand all sorts of things. We can understand that God loves little children. We can understand that God has all the time in the world for the repentant sinner. We can understand that those that are self-satisfied and hypocritical, God has no time for. We can understand that God weeps over the destruction of people, the destruction that is self-imposed, that, that they brought about themselves. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets, how often would I have gathered thee, thee together as a hen doth gather her chickens, and ye would not. We can understand that God doesn't care about your past. Whatever you may have done, 
Your sordid history doesn't count at all when it comes to God. Jesus said, Thou hast said rightly. Thou hast had five husbands, and the one that thou now hast is not thy husband. In this thou saidst truly. Can you imagine being unmasked in that way? But Christ didn't do it accusingly. Perhaps he barely even raised his voice to tell her that, to explain to her that he already knew what kind of a woman she was and that it didn't matter because God was looking for those that would worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. Do you understand that there are no barriers to getting to know this God? You don't have to be raised in a godly home. You don't need to even fully understand the word of God. You don't have to be able to debate this. You don't have to go on to some kind of a higher level education. God can use all of those things. Of course he can. Paul is a perfect example of that. But none of it is required. And in fact, some of the most powerful men of God have been the simplest. Simplest. Outside of the Holy Scriptures, the second most popular book, I believe, ever written was Paul Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, written by a tinker. No great intellectual giant. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not of the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual This is the power of the persecuted church. Wherever believers gather together around the word of God and seek it, not with the wisdom of men, not to debate and discuss, but to live what that word says, the spirit is present with power. He does things in those groups of believers that confound the wisdom of this world. It doesn't make sense to those that only operate under this world's wisdom. Again and again, the persecutors of God's children break down under the, under the, the weight of the actions of his children to see how patient they are in suffering, how they pray for those that are even persecuting them, how they're able to endure and endure and endure as if they were seeing something invisible. That's the wisdom that comes from above. The simplest ones can possess this. There are too many accounts. You could go through Martyr's Mirror. 
You can read any number of historical books. You can even look back through the stories of faith and courage that have been published about brothers and sisters that have endured much for the sake of the gospel. And you will find this common theme, that there was a wisdom that they possessed that the world did not understand. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Just think about the history of Christianity as it spread throughout the known world. How could this religion survive? A religion that did not even defend itself that told the, the intelligent and the rich that they had no special privilege there. A religion that spread like wildfire among, the, among the, the lower classes, the slaves, the tradesmen, those who were oppressed, all of those that matched the description in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. There are stories from the Roman historians about this early church and their confusion. You see, Rome was, was very uh, egalitarian. They were very liberal with their attitude toward religion. All religions could coexist. Where have we heard that before? All religions could coexist in the Roman Empire. In fact, gods and, and deities were, were traded from culture to culture. It was not uncommon that ones from one culture would, say, take up the worship of a god of another culture. No big deal. Yet when the teachings of this traveling rabbi from the backwater of Jewry, a small subjugated province on the Mediterranean, began to take hold, Rome found them up against the, found themselves up against something that they had no experience with. This was a religion that was uncompromising in its view, but not in a militant way. It simply refused to acknowledge the authority and the power of Rome. It was the same way with the Protestants in Northern Europe or the Catholics in Southern Europe. When the Church of God said, that there is no other authority other than God, and that there is no uh, higher calling than to serve him and even suffer for his sake. Secular authorities rose up against that sort of an attitude. And the Roman historians that write about these, these Christians, they are genuinely confused with these people. It, there's an example that comes to mind about two young slave girls that under torture, they were tortured to find out what they really believed, what was really going on with these Christian groups. The historian, I think it was Pliny that wrote, he says they, they worship a man that they say suffered an ignoble death, crucifixion, and yet according to them rose from the dead. They have no special right there's no, um, there, there's, there's, there's no hierarchy. They, they, they treat each other as brothers and sisters. Their, their goods, they are, are shared freely. He, he didn't know what to make of this. 
How does this make sense? Why would people on a long weekend choose to leave the comfort of their own homes and gather in a building like this around a book whose last pages were written about 2,000 years ago? There is another wisdom. That's the only answer. If you are not open to that other wisdom, I can do nothing for you. God's word can do nothing for you. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God given to us. But there is much more to the wisdom of God. If you think that you can understand God, you're definitely wrong. He's much greater than that. It tells us here, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. There are things to God that we simply cannot fully grasp. We cannot take in. That is what it is. But as we, as we look through the pages of God's word as a set of glasses, that analogy was used when we were uh, during the camp week. We don't concentrate on the glasses. We look through them. And it brings things into focus. And the more that we see, the more that we understand that there is so much more to see. That is the thing with God. The, the wisdom of God is at its center very, very simple. But the greatness of who God is is infinite. This is what makes eternity worthwhile, a pleasure for the believer to understand that he will never fully understand how great God really is. And he will praise him. We will praise him for an eternity because of that. The wisdom of God is simple. There is no barrier to understanding him. The last barrier that could have been disappeared with the coming of Jesus Christ. He came to show us the Father, and then if that was not enough, he died in our place to remove the weight of sin and resurrected that we can join him, that we can be like him, that we can share that same spirit that understands the spirit of God. What a blessing this is. This is something that as time goes by, I, I realize how little I know, how little I understand, but it's so exciting to see how great God really is. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. Would a brother please? This morning we heard about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. No comparison. If we look at the previous chapter, it talks about the Apostle Paul as he was if you will, admonishing the church for their factions, their divisions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of 
see first sign of Christ. And he said, look among you, brethren. Look among you who are called. Not many are called that are mighty, that are noble. And if you can add all these other things that are wise according to this world, look among you. He has chosen the weak things, the base things of this world to confound the wise. And he said the, the Greeks look for a sign. Uh, the Jews look for a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. And he says God has chosen by the foolishness of preaching to save them that are lost. It's foolishness to men, but it's the power of God to those that are lost. And as the brother spoke, I thought about examples in this world where there were those that were wise, those that were, according to this world, intelligent and, and mighty and powerful, if you will, well-known. And they gave up what they first embarked on because they saw it was foolish. And some of them gave up noble practices. I'm thinking of Martin Lloyd-Jones just recently I read in England. He was a doctor of medicine. He gave it up to become a preacher. I'm thinking of Sir Robert Anderson who was part of Scotland Yard. He gave it up to research the Bible. and to, He wrote that book, The Coming Prince. And there are so many twi uh, uh, brothers, Peter and Christopher Hitchens. One went this way against God and one went this way to become a preacher. Christopher's dead and buried. Body riddled with cancer. What is his hope? What happens is really when we pursue the things that are temporal, we are sure to perish with no hope. When we, when we pursue the things that are eternal, that's wise. That's not foolish. And God has given this to babes, Jesus says, to babes. That's why the Jews and the Pharisees missed out, because they were wise in their own conceits. Be wise, not in your own conceit, but in the wisdom of God, in his word, in trusting the living God who provided an easy way. The scripture says in Isaiah 35 that there will come a way where the wayfaring man and the fool cannot err because it came in the simplicity of the gospel I beg we plead as be ambassadors for Christ to submit yourself to the wisdom of God and your end is assured to him be the glory evermore Amen this concludes our service